Many, many years ago, a National Geographic published a picture of a couple skeletons of saber-toothed cats. And the one saber-toothed cat had basically bitten deeply into the leg bone of the, the other saber-toothed cat, and I guess it was bitten in return, and ultimately both cats died biting each other, and this is how they were discovered by archaeologists. So I have a question for you. Have you bitten anybody lately? Have you brought any destruction to other people's lives? One of the messages that we see in the Gospels and also in the epistles of our New Testament is that unity is one of God's overarching desires for the Christian church. But as one commentator noted, sometimes Christians are more like the saber-toothed cats. And so for this reason, instead of biting and devouring each other and feuding over every possible difference of opinion, Paul in Galatians chapter five, so a few chapters ahead of where we've been studying, in Galatians chapter five, after warning us to love one another and reminding us of that overarching command to love one another, writes, this is Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you were not consumed by one another. So this is a, an interesting statement for him to make that even among Christians, sometimes we are destructive with our words or our actions toward one another. And that's one of the things that Paul warns the church to avoid. Now this sermon series, this series of biblical messages as I've already told you, is called Getting the Gospel Right. And that implies that you can get the gospel wrong. You know that, right? You can get the gospel wrong. The gospel can be twisted or lost or abandoned. And it has been time and time again throughout church history. It's been twisted. It's been lost. It's been abandoned by whole denominations, whole clusters of churches and they eventually die or they are reformed and they get the gospel right. They get back to the truth of God's word. So we, we, we have this idea here in the biblical text about unity, but then we also have this overarching theme woven through Galatians that it's possible to, for a church to come apart, to be divided, to be, to be broken apart if we get the gospel wrong. And so while we are committed to unity and we are committed to love, and we want to live at peace with one another, brothers and sisters, here's what we need to understand. Sometimes confrontation is necessary to maintain the purity of the gospel, the unity of the church. Now, there can be different kinds of disunity that creep into the church, and there can be different kinds of disunity that fractures the gospel. You can have doctrinal disunity. So someone is just preaching a gospel that's not biblical. You can also have relational uh, disunity in, in churches where people are maybe misunderstanding one another and they need to have a conversation to bring clarity to their views. You can also have ethical disunity. So an example of that would be a person that knows between the ears in their minds what the gospel is, who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, but they're not living it out. They're living contrary to the gospel. And in the passage we're going to explore today, that really is one of the fundamental problems that Paul has to address. 
he had to confront another believer who understood the gospel but was not living in light of the gospel and as a result was perverting the gospel. But before we go there, I want to just give, and we're going to look at a few other passages today from John's writings as well as Galatians. I want to give you an example of confrontation that occurs elsewhere in the scriptures. So if you go to the book of 3 John, which doesn't have any chapters because it's so short. So it's 3 John 9. Paul or, or John there had to confront a early Christian whose name was Diotrephes. So this is not just Paul doing the confrontation, but other apostles had to do it as well. And in 3 John 9, it says, I sent a brief letter to the church about this. He was addressing a particular issue, but Diotrephes, who was a leader in the church, who loves to be the leader, does not acknowledge our authority. So here we have an example of a man who was causing division in the early church because of ego and pride. He loved his position. He loved being a leader. Now it's good to love being a leader if that's how God has wired you in the church. Not everybody needs to be a leader, but if, if you're a leader, it's good to have a certain joy and desire to do that. But that's not what Diotrephes' issue was. Diotrephes loved to be in the limelight. He loved to be the head of the pack. And when Paul, an apostle, his superior, wrote to the church, Diotrephes would just kind of push it aside because he did not want to acknowledge any authority outside of himself. Well, this is relational destructiveness that we see here in that text. He's the classic dictator. It was his church. He did not like other leaders being sent. And he failed. This is critical if you're a leader, by the way. He failed to differentiate between leading people and controlling people. And those are two different things. Leading people as opposed to controlling people. So this is a biblical example of relational destructiveness. In, in Galatians chapter 2, so this is back to where we're going to spend the majority of our time, verses 11 to 21, so the second half of chapter 2. Really what we have is theological destructiveness, but it was also tied into relational destructiveness. So sometimes these two things sort of go hand in hand and most often do. So Paul, again, Galatians 5, we're into unity. We want to be one. We want to be together. But sometimes I got to confront. And unfortunately, Paul had to address none other, check this out, than the apostle Peter. So if you think apostles are perfect, this is an example where they clearly are not. Paul had to address the apostle Peter. Why? For buckling to pressure from his Jewish peers and imposing Jewish cultural practices on Gentile converts. Not just suggestions, but imposing Gentile or, or Jewish practices on Gentile converts, and even in order for him to even be willing to spend time with them. So enter into the text with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 
11. And as you, you probably already know, one of the other names for Peter is Cephas. So that's how he's addressed here. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul writes, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So keep in mind, Peter is a Jew and he's eating with Gentile brothers in Christ who'd come to faith in Jesus and everything seemed to be fine. That was part of his regular routine, you could say. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So if you remember last week, circumcision is a sign and seal of participation in an Old Testament covenant that God made with Abraham to bless his seed, his offspring. And the organ that produces the seed was required to be physically marked as a sign, seal, and symbol of that covenant. So that's just a little backstory there, background information. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, remember Barnabas came up last week as well, one of Paul's choice colleagues. He was even led astray by their hypocrisy. So when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, This wasn't a private conversation because his public behavior had become known and had led others astray. So this was one of those unique times when it required a public rebuke. Oftentimes rebuke should start off in private, but this was a public rebuke. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Fortunately, Peter benefited from this confrontation. He didn't cut and run like many people do, even in the Christian church today when they're confronted for their behavior or their teaching. He didn't cut and run. He didn't take his church membership and go to another church. Peter benefited from this so much so that by the time Paul visited Jerusalem for the third time, which is recorded in Acts 15, Peter was the one warning everyone not to impose Jewish rules on Gentiles. So he benefited from this. He corrected his behavior and went on to become a mighty warrior for Christ. So the question then is, we have Galatians 5. We're going for unity. We want to love one another. We want to get along. Nobody wants division in the church. But at the same time, we have an example of confrontation here. So when to fight and when to allow for diversity is the big question. When to fight and when to allow for diversity. Well, brothers and sisters, it's important for us to be able to function properly as a church and to agree on many things. But when it comes to relational disputes that become personal, that become offensive, we want to be very careful to not apply the same amount of pressure or the same amount of unction to the kind of things that don't really matter in the big picture. So we often call these church distinctives. So again, in our church, it's okay for us to have some differences of opinions on things. Okay, we don't all have to have the exact same view of the end times. That's not a reason to, if you believe that Jesus is coming back and he's your Lord and Savior, you can be ah mill, you can be post mill, you can be pre mill, 
we don't need to split our church over that. We don't need to split our church over differences of opinion on musical styles or differences of opinion on exactly how to arrange ministries and who serves here and who serves there. These are secondary issues. We can have different opinions on things that aren't heaven or hell issues. But as I've taught before, there are certain core doctrines that we have to defend at all costs. And if we don't defend them, the Christian faith actually disintegrates before us. They include the triunity of God. God is a trinity. He is three persons eternally existing in one essence. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. There's actually a Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's authoritative word. Jesus Christ is coming back. To get saved, you must trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. These are core things. Jesus was born of a virgin. These are core doctrines. And the reason why Paul comes on so strong here is because Peter, an apostle, was starting to tinker with and twist the gospel. This wasn't a difference of opinion, again, on some minor issue. This was a difference of opinion on a major issue. How does a person get saved? I mean, that's a great question. And one of the greatest questions, how, do I, how am I made right with God? How do I get to heaven? Folks, if you get that one wrong, the consequences are literally eternal. So Peter, who previously was teaching the gospel, understood it, was starting to twist it. And what's fascinating is it wasn't because he started reading the Bible differently seeing things he'd never seen. It was because of peer pressure. Peer pressure. Other people were pressuring him to withdraw from the Gentiles. Well, yeah, they might be trusting in Christ as Jewish friends are whispering in his ears, but they're not circumcised. They're not part of our group. You know, it doesn't look good for you to be hanging around with them. And after a while, he succumbed to this peer pressure and he started actually disconnecting relationally from other believers. It's a horrible thing. So what are the grounds for confrontation? When someone monkeys around with the gospel, when someone monkeys around with the character of God, when someone monkeys around with the authority of scripture. Let me give you another example of this happening in scripture from Acts 13. Now this is verses six to 12. The reason why I wanna read this is because I wanna acknowledge we're in Canada we tend to be a little more passive than our American brethren to the South. We don't like confrontation. We like to apologize. We might think that tone is super important. We might be a little put off in calling people names, but check out this early New Testament account. This is another example of where Paul had to confront a false teacher and take note not only of his concern, but his method. So this is Acts 13, verse six. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul. This is who you would know as Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. 
So this magistrate hears something about this new message and he's like, hey, I'd like to actually hear from this Barnabas guy and this Paul guy about this gospel of Jesus Christ. But off to his side is this magician, not one with a little white bunny that he pulls out of a hat, but really a person guilty of witchcraft who doesn't like that. So in verse eight, it says, but Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposes them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. How much worse can it get than that? Actually seeking to turn someone away from the potential to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? That's about as low as you can get, folks. This has massive eternal implications. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and just remained silent. Circled in on him complimented all his pluses and then eventually got to his negatives? No. Listen to what Paul does. You son of a devil. (laughs) Calls him a name. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. I love that word. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon him and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. The lost person didn't say, yeah, I don't want to hear any more about this Jesus guy. Clearly Christians are a little opinionated. Actually, Paul's harsh treatment of this wicked, deceptive man who was trying to turn the proconsul away from faith was so impressive that it was used by God as an instrument to lead him to Christ. Sometimes you got to get tough with falsehood, folks, and you got to call it for what it is. Not beat around the bush, not hope that someone else deals with it. The stakes were high. Sergius Paulus was on the verge of conversion. And this magician was standing in the way. So Paul, of course, responds with red hot rage, not selfish rage, not, well, you're robbing me of the opportunity. He was enraged because he wanted to defend the gospel of God. And this should be our motive as well. The greatest evil you could possibly commit against a person we might think is murder or adultery or theft, but those have temporary implications. But to actually turn someone away from the gospel, Jesus spoke of this as well when little children were coming to him and his disciples are trying to push him away. And he talks about how better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea than to stop one of these little ones from coming to me. This is how important it is for us to not distort the gospel and to ensure that people or churches or denominations or ourselves are not distorting it and leading people away. The greatest relational evil is to distort the gospel. The proconsul's eternal destiny, either in heaven or hell, were on the line. If you understand the implications of the gospel, it's not just 
well, you have a worldview, I have a worldview, we, we don't agree. The gospel is a heaven or hell issue. It's a life or death issue. And there are so many people out there trying to pervert the gospel. This is why we should be enraged and we should respond and we should speak out. The gospel, of course, at its core is about the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of creation. That's why I get so worked up when others try to usurp the authority of Christ over his church because I understand the implications of it. The gospel is not just how to get to heaven, but it starts with the lordship of Christ. If you lose the lordship of Christ over creation, you will lose the gospel. Could, could take an hour, could take a generation. But if Christ is not Lord of all, then he's Lord of nothing. So fundamentally, we defend the lordship of Christ. We push away any elemises, any magicians who for whatever reason are trying to stand in the way of people hearing the full gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, of course, we're told here was guiding Paul. The Holy Spirit was grieved and it was the Holy Spirit that obviously cursed this man so that he temporarily lost his vision. So we obviously want to be guided by the Holy Spirit. You need to check your motives when you're confronting and challenging. But here's what we need to understand in our culture, being polite is one of the highest virtues. And to the point that we often can't separate biblical behavior from Canadian behavior. So if you, if you preach hard, you must be arrogant, must be prideful, must be cocky. If you actually say, no, that's wrong. Oh, you must be narrow-minded. You must be a bigot. You must be a traditionalist. Because in our culture, we're taught from the time that we're very young, those of you that have been raised in Canada, and I know not all of you were, but I was in my many generations of my family before me, were taught to be polite, don't, don't kind of challenge or confront, kind of live and let live, apologize for everything. We're actually known for this internationally. It's not working very well, by the way, in our culture. <laughs> it certainly doesn't work when it comes to the gospel. So this classic Christian nice guy approach needs to be discarded, frankly, it needs to be discarded. There's times to be nice, and there's times not to be nice. We also need to understand that if we're, not, if we're just nice and we don't say anything, someone else is gonna step forward and they're gonna say something. And it's gonna be some sort of falsehood that leads people astray. Uh, none of us should enjoy conflict. It's, it's weird, to, it's awkward. I find it awkward, but it's necessary. And if you're driven by your convictions and principles, you will confront, you'll confront your children if you're a parent when they're, when they're going astray. You'll confront me if necessary. You'll confront other people in your small group, your neighbors. Not every day, probably not every moment, but at times it is necessary. So the question for us to think about is, does our blood boil like Paul's did when he sees the gospel being, being twisted? When was the last time you encountered a false teacher? What'd you say? How did you respond to that? doesn't need to be a false preacher that's preaching a sermon on a Sunday, but someone 
maybe another Christian and they say something and you're like, that's not, no, that's not right. There's not multiple ways to heaven. It's not live and let live. You can get there however you want. There is truth. There is truth to be had. Plenty of times I've heard people say things that are false. I've heard people say that baptism actually is the means of salvation called baptismal regeneration. It's not true. It's not in the scriptures. Every time someone is baptized in the scriptures, they believed and then they were baptized. That's the order. So we defend that. I've heard preachers say that there are many paths to God. Might be Jesus, might be Muhammad, might be Krishna, might be the Buddha. Just, they're, all, they're all go to the same place. It's not true. It's also logically and historically inconsistent with the messages those people preached. I've heard people say that, oh, if you just send me a, a big old fat check, send a check to my ministry and we'll, we'll send blessings back your way. This is selling the gospel. This is financial manipulation. It's wrong. It needs to be confronted. So we have to confront this kind of behavior and we don't confront it because we have an insatiable desire to be personally right. That's not why we do it. No. It's not because we oppose unity and we, we love disunity. We love, we love being in a fight. It's not because we've sensationalized conflict. It's, it's not because we're old fashioned traditionalists. That's not why but we live and die by the conviction that Christ alone holds the keys to eternal salvation. And we desperately long to see the eyes of humanity opened to the free gift of salvation. That's why we do it because we love people and because we love God. Any message that stands in the way of the free gift of salvation will lead a great, greater number of people into a Christless eternity. And for this reason, we must never apologize, never compromise, or back down. None of us should. We should stand strong in our faith, graciously and winsomely present it to those who would listen and confront those that are twisting it. It's interesting how when it comes to, we have an election coming up obviously, and Canadians in general are critical of elected officials. And it's actually part of our system. We have an official opposition in our parliamentary system, you're actually invited to oppose. It's part of our system. If you don't oppose, you're not really very Canadian. So you oppose, you speak out, you, you, you confront. You're like, I don't like this policy. I like that policy. We all do this, but then when it comes to the gospel, it's like, oh, well, we, we don't do that. We don't criticize, we don't confront, we don't oppose. Well, <laughs> we should, and at times we will have to. In fact, this is so important that if this church ever turns away from that message, either in this generation or the next, I hope it closes its doors. Hope it does. Or repents. This, this is how strong our commitment to the gospel must be. So do you walk in the footsteps of Paul and boldly stand in the face of anyone who would try to hinder another human from hearing the gospel? Now, the second thing we wanna talk about this morning is the grounds for unity. So we've talked about the grounds for disunity. You should divide, you should separate, you should confront, you should challenge a false gospel. But I don't wanna just end there. I wanna talk about the grounds of unity and perhaps the most famous unity passage in all of the New Testament is John 17. 
This is called Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prays for unity among Christians. And we got to ask, what is the grounds of unity? It's not some wishy-washy, just go along to get along kind of unity. There's a substance to the unity that Christ wants to see among us. It's not enough to just be sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. And then if you're sincerely wrong about the gospel, you need to be confronted. But there's also some radical unity and the unity that Christ is praying for in John 17 verses six to seven is actually centered on the work of Christ among us. He says there, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. By the way, this is Jesus speaking. Yours they were, speaking to the Father, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So Christ is obeying the will of the Father. He's coming, he's preaching the truth. He's preaching the message of eternal life. And a church, a group of disciples has been formed out of that, I should say. And it's all centering on the work of Christ. And he goes on to remind us in this prayer that the means of salvation is the acceptance of God's word and belief that Jesus came from God. So this is where he takes us in verse eight. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So they believed in Jesus Christ, his message and his identity. Now, as people are then saved from eternal destruction by Jesus, in light of that, listening to, understanding the identity of Christ, then he prays the following words. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So this is a prayer specifically for believers in Jesus Christ. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's actually quite a shocking statement that Jesus is praying for the same kind of unity among us as exists within the Trinity, which is radical, eternal unity. That's how unified he wants us to be of one mind, one spirit, one message. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. And then down to verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This beautiful Trinitarian unity and this Trinitarian love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for forever past and forever into the future. This is what Christ prays would be present within his church. It's not some wishy-washy, well, we're just go along to get along, well, we just sincerely like each other. It's grounded in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kind of unity is only possible when we all agree on who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it, the proof's in the pudding because when you come to church, you think about this. 
Most of us met each other here, unless we're family members. So we met each other here. We're here because Christ has impacted our lives. We're here because we believe he is the Lord and savior of the world. We're here because he has transformed us. We've repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't give each other the time of day. So our unity as a church is because of what Jesus has accomplished. That's why we're together. All People here from different ethnic backgrounds, different ages. What is our unity? Because we all play golf? No. Because we all live in the burbs? No. Because we got nothing better to do on Sunday morning? No. It's because of Jesus. That's what's brought us into this place. So Christ's earth, uh, high priestly prayer has had a, a tremendous effect on our lives and past generations. Our unity is in Christ. It's not some wishy-washy, go-along-to-get-along kind of theology. It's not, well, we have differences of opinion on sexual ethics, so just, let's just allow everybody to believe what they want because we just want to be united like Jesus said. No, there has to be a, a center, a core to our uh, beliefs. This is true in, in business. It's true in public services. You know, if you're going to sell shoes, you're going to work for a shoe, a shoe sales, uh, a shoe company, you have to believe in the product. If you're going to be a cop, you have to believe in the law. If you're going to be a firefighter, you have to believe that arson's not cool, that people's lives are valuable. Whatever it is that you do in your career, in your job, it's because everybody that works here kind of is pulling in the same direction, same basic beliefs same basic principles and values that guides them. Well, how much more in the Christian church when our lives have been radically transformed by the gospel? So I want to encourage you to follow in the footsteps of the apostle Paul. Strive for unity. Don't get your shorts in a knot over every little comment that's made. Don't cause division over secondary issues, but do confront Falsehood, just as Paul confronted Peter, and maybe in the past, faithful believers have confronted you or me for our error. Do not succumb to peer pressure, fear, or hypocrisy. Peter, unfortunately, was a seasoned believer. He should have known better, but he was terrified of what people think. He succumb to the hypocrisy and then other people succumb to the hypocrisy. By the way, your behavior has an influence on other people. You know that, right? If your hypocrites begat hypocrites and cowards begat cowards and conflict avoidant people begat conflict avoidant people. You see this in family structures. Dad's terrified of everything and his kids are terrified of everything. Mom doesn't say anything the kids don't say anything. So we see this in family structures and we want to create gospel-centered family structures where we're building up strong generations of Christians who aren't easily susceptible to peer pressure, who don't live in fear and aren't easily intimidated and don't back down because the pressure is too strong. And they're certainly not hypocrites. They actually live what they believe. Are these characteristics present in you. The final verse I want to draw your attention to is in Galatians 2.16. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. This is not an antinomian text, meaning an anti-law text. It's not saying it's a free for all. There's no rules. There's no law. All those things, those laws that God gave in the Old Testament are bad. Don't do them. It's not saying that. It's very specific. You won't be justified by obeying works of the law. They have a different purpose to provide structure and order and blessing. But you won't be justified, meaning you can never be made right with God because you're circumcised, because you follow the dietary laws, because you attend the temple and go through the rituals. You will never be made right by your effort. How are we made right by God? Through his grace. I think we brought that point home pretty clearly last Sunday. Salvation is by God's grace. That's the means, that's the source. Salvation is by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus. And when we add to it, we actually destroy the gospel. So let's recommit to being gospel-centered people who, because of our love for God and our love for others, always hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll add this, at all costs, at all costs. And may God be glorified through our lives, families, and church as a result.